This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Loving Father, we thank you for this morning and we pray that as we come to your word, you would teach us what we know not, you would give to us what we have not, and you would make us the people that we are not. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've heard before the story of an old lady who lives with her two sons and also a cat, and one son loves the cat and one son hates the cat. And the son that loves the cat has to travel overseas. And so when he's been gone a few days, he rings back and he says, how's the cat? And the brother answers it and says, the cat is dead. And the brother who's overseas says, why are you so insensitive? Why have you put this so badly? Why didn't you say to me, the cat was playing on the roof? And then a couple of days later, you could say, the cat injured its leg. And then you could say a couple of days later, we took it to the vet. And then eventually the vet had to very gently put the cat down. Why are you so insensitive? Why are you so thoughtless? Anyway, how's mother? And he said, she's playing on the roof. (laughs) And I tell you that because I don't really know whether there is an easy way to tell the message of Deuteronomy 20. And uh, preaching this at the 8 o'clock service, uh, I tell you seriously, some people uh, wouldn't shake hands with me at the end of the sermon. Some people said they were glad they'd come. This is a very challenging chapter, and we are traveling, driving fairly quickly through the book of Deuteronomy, and we come today to chapter 20. This is Moses preparing God's people for the entry into the promised land. We know that they should have gone in about 40 years before, but they refused to believe that it would work to go in. They said, this is not going to work. And God caused them to travel through the desert for 40 years. Now they are on the verge of the entry into the promised land. And uh, this chapter is preparing people for war. And uh, I hope that you will remember, uh, as a result of this particular chapter and sermon, that God is a God who fights. He's not only a shepherd, he's not only a God of peace, but he's a God who fights. He fights against evil and he fights for his righteousness. And I don't think as we have a series in Deuteronomy that we can really avoid this issue. I don't think we can avoid this particular chapter. Uh, There is a sense in which reading this is always going to be painful. But I don't want us, on the other hand, to be uh, embarrassed or apologetic about this chapter, as if God has an unfortunate side to him, as if God has a skeleton in the closet or a weakness in his character. We must fix it in our mind that the Bible tells us he is perfect, he is holy, he is loving, he is patient, he is powerful in ways that we could never imagine. And uh, one day we will begin to see more clearly exactly how perfect he is. But in his character and in his behavior, he is perfect. So we should actually be, in a strange way, rejoicing in this great truth that he is at war with evil. There is one non-fictional person in the universe because Superman and Spider-Man and Batman, I presume are attempts of human fiction to create somebody 
who will appear to us to be dealing with the evil of the world, but there is one non-fictional person in the universe who can see evil for what it is and fight for its removal and not only fight against it, but fight for his people. We know on a small scale, I think, what it's like to have somebody fight for us. When somebody defends us, we say they're in our corner. They have gone into bat for us, and God fights for his people. We read that in chapter 20, verse 4. Now, I want to put the chapter in its context before we dive into it, especially in case there are some here today who are visiting or you're listening for the first time to this little series. But uh, Deuteronomy is a book of preaching, Moses preaching to God's people as they enter into the promised land, And chapters 5 to 26, which is about four-fifths of the book, is one major sermon. And this sermon begins, chapter 5, with the telling of the Ten Commandments again. And then chapter 6 to 26 is the unpacking of what those commandments will mean when you get into the Promised Land. So a couple of sermons ago, we looked at what it will mean to keep the first and the second command, to be devoted to God and to not be a worshipper of idols. And Moses says this means you're going to have to be very serious about your devotion to him, and you're have to going to be very destructive when it comes to idols. And then last sermon, we looked at what it means to obey commandments number three and four, taking his name, enjoying the Sabbath. And Moses said, you're going to have to be a very distinct, a very different people. Now we come to really what is the exposition or the unpacking of commandment number six. It starts in chapter 19, where Moses begins to speak about murder or manslaughter and what to do. And then when we come to chapter 20, he begins to talk about war, which again is under commandment number six. And then when we get to Deuteronomy 21, he talks about what to do after a war, what to do when you find a corpse, what to do when you capture somebody. So we're really under the umbrella of the sixth commandment. And I think it's very important for us, since this is the beginning of an invasion into the promised land, that we deal with the invasion. And I want to do it this morning by dividing the chapter into three parts. Uh, First of all, verses 1 to 4, which is really God's fight with evil. And then verses 5 to 18, we're going to think about how God is fair in dealing with people. And then we're going to think, thirdly, the last two verses, these strange verses that talk about trees, to show you that God is far-sighted. He fights, he's fair, and he's farsighted. So first of all, let's um, look at Deuteronomy 20, and I'm going to read again verses 1 to 4. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, O Israel, today you're going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. We need to realize that God's people are on the verge of a serious war. They didn't ask for this war. I can't imagine any of them said, we would really like to be part of a battle. 
where we might die. But they belong to Yahweh and Yahweh has plans for them in the promised land. They have no land. They are without a land. He has a land planned for them. But the question that we're asking as we come to this is why invade someone else's land? Why would you see the occupants as enemies? Why be the aggressor? Is this not exactly what we condemn today when we see a nation invade another nation? I hope you'll ask these sort of questions. And the answer in a nutshell, and this demands a lot more thought and a lot more study, but in a nutshell, this is a unique battle. This is a one-off, never-to-be-repeated historical event. First of all, God is the owner of the land, and he's the owner of the people and everything in the land. Second, he has waited about four centuries to act. He has been patient for about 400 years. He said in Genesis 15 to Abraham, I will wait and I will wait and I will wait. Incredible patience. Thirdly, he has let the nations in the promised land hear of him. All the nations have heard of him. They have all heard how he brought his people out of Egypt across the Red Sea. They have all heard what happened to the Egyptians. They have all heard what's happening to the Israelites. Rahab in the promised land said the whole of the country is trembling, but not repenting, not responding. And so these nations, uh, they are effectively seven nations, have made themselves God's enemies. And because they are God's enemies, they are Israel's enemies as well. And now the time has come. So this is a unique invasion. And you can see this if you look at verse one, that Moses says, God who brought you out of Egypt will, implication, take you into Canaan. And look at the role of the priest, verse two, the priest who handles the law, the word of God, He's going to step up in front of the army and he's going to say, don't fall into panic because God is with you and he will fight for you and he will give you victory. In other words, this is not a gamble. This is not potluck. This is, I'm not wishing you good luck. This is not your average army chaplain standing up and saying, let's say a prayer. We don't know how this will go, but let's say a prayer. Not at all. This is a priest giving a promise. Canaan is going to be yours. There is a plan for war in God's world, and there is a place for, God, for war in God's world. You remember that John the Baptist, on one occasion, had some soldiers come up to him and say, we want to repent. How should we repent? And he didn't for a minute say, give up your job as a soldier. You remember that Jesus would deal occasionally with a centurion. It never occurred to him to say, become a pacifist. There is a place for the army and Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13 that the government does not wield the sword for nothing. The government is expected to exercise protection and even punishment. But listen very carefully to this. A legitimate international war is not what's happening in Deuteronomy 20. This Deuteronomy 20 is God at work for his kingdom. This is God at work for his plans, his purposes, his kingdom. 
He is now judging his enemies, and it is a little preview of the judgment day. He is blessing his people, and it's a little preview of the last day when they will go into glory. Where do we see God fight today? Well, we may see God bless or punish a nation, raising up good leadership, raising up evil leadership. We may see God bless or punish an individual, giving them success in the polls or failure in the polls. But in the end, the Bible tells us that God fights every minute of every day in every area of the whole of the universe for his glory and his purposes and his kingdom and his people. The greatest battle of all, believe it or not, and you may find this hard to believe, the greatest battle of all took place on Calvary where the Son of God, the ruler of the universe, disarmed the principalities and the powers who stand behind national wars and international wars. He disarmed the principalities and the powers, changing the destiny of billions. And that battle is the great battle of which all wars and all battles are just tiny symptoms. And therefore, there is a sense in which God, who is a fighter for his purposes and a fighter against his non-purposes, could echo Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 to 4, to us today and say, as you go in the spiritual battle and as you go for the advancement of my glory and my kingdom and my will, I am with you. And I will make sure that you are sustained and the victory is sure because God is a fighter for his purposes against his enemies. The second thing to look at this particular morning in Deuteronomy 20, verses 5 to 18, is what I've called God's fairness to various people. And the first of these areas of fairness is his fairness to the troops. Look at verse 5. This is very humane treatment. And uh, by the way, Israel at this stage has no standing army. They have no mercenaries. They have no regular army. They have no professional army. This is just citizens being called to fight. But the officer is to get up and he is to provide freedom to leave. He can say to a, a person, have you just built a house? Well, feel free to go. Have you just planted a vineyard? Feel free to leave. Have you just got engaged? Feel free to go home. Are you just plain frightened? Feel free to go home. Why would God do this in the face of such a daunting prospect? And the answer is he does it because of his goodness and he does it because of his power. He does it because of his goodness, because when they get into the land and fighting becomes a very long, drawn-out thing, he actually wants his people to be enjoying the land. He has not called them so that they might just give their blood. He is not a God who is extracting the blood of his people. He's called them to enjoy the land. He wants them to enjoy the land. He is gracious. And the second reason that he would do this is because he's powerful. He's not threatened by fewer numbers. He can win the victory with exactly the right people, the willing people. 
And on a smaller scale, this took place in the life of Gideon, where Gideon cut back his soldiers to hundreds, even though they were facing hundreds of thousands. In other words, God is good and powerful to his people. Michael Reeves, in a little book on prayer, says in the middle of the book, he says, I want to ask you the question as to why you are disinclined to draw near to God. Why is it, he says in this little book on prayer, do you, do we, find that we are disinclined to draw near to God? It's a very good question. You might like to reflect on the reason, he says. And part of the reason, of course, is that uh, we're perverse and we don't really want to spend time in prayer with God because if we spend time in prayer with God, we have to do business with God and that means being 100% real with God. And we would prefer to just say brief things and keep our distance. That's our sinfulness. But part of the reason that we are not inclined to get near to God is also because of our faulty doctrine, that we don't quite get the goodness and we don't quite get the power. And therefore, we need to keep being shaped by the word. But here you see God is good and powerful to the troops. The second area of fairness is where God is gracious to the cities, chapter 20, verse 10. These are the cities that are beyond the promised land because we know from chapter 19 that God was perhaps going to expand their borders. And God says in chapter 20, verse 10, when you're dealing with the cities beyond the promised land, again, verse 15, the the cities at a distance make an offer of peace. The first thing that you're to say to them is, Shalom. We offer you peace. It's exactly like the gospel of the New Testament, John 3. Jesus says, I did not come to condemn, but to save. And the people of God in the Old Testament are to extend the message of peace. If that is accepted, they will begin to serve the people of Israel. If it's rejected, then the people of Israel are to begin a siege. And when they begin a siege and they capture, it means the death of the men and the capturing of the women, the children, and the livestock. Now, this sounds harsh to us, but it is incredibly fair in the warfare of the time. Not every nation would offer an out to troops. Not every nation would offer peace to neighbours. Not every nation would be kind to captives. If you turn to 21.13, you'll see, for example, if a woman is taken captive from battle, she could not be abused in any way. She was to be given a month to settle, perhaps a month to grieve. Only after a month could a man take her as his wife. And again, this may sound speedy and rough to us, but in the world of Canaan, it was unheard of. The people of God were to be patient and kind like their God. The pagan world, of course, would attack in a frenzy. But Yahweh's people were to go in his name and offer his peace And then they were to be obedient if the city refused, and then they were to be self-controlled if there was a matter of captives. So this is God's fairness to the neighbouring cities. But now we come to what is really the most uh, difficult three verses in Deuteronomy 20. If the chapter itself is difficult, verses 16 to 18 is the most confronting section of all. And I think it is meant to make us recoil I don't think that we're meant ever to get comfortable with these verses. I don't think we're ever meant to read this and say, I don't care. There's meant to be a recoil as long as we read these verses. But the cities we read in verses 16 to 18, which refused God in the, in the promised land, 
nobody was to be left alive. And the Old Testament records three cities that were taken like this, Jericho, Ai, and Hazor. And even though verse 18 tells us that this was to remove the idolatry and the evil, in other words, it was to remove the cancer for the health of the body, the fact of the matter is that actually what's happening is that God's people have become God's instrument for God's judgment. This is judgment brought forward. And God's people have become his instrument in the exercising of that judgment. Now, there is nothing to match this in the Old Testament. This is an invasion ordered by God. It's very, very confronting. This is what unbelievers criticize, and this is what many believers wish was not in their Bible. One man said to me this morning, he said, if I could cut that particular section out, I would. But we are meant, as the Lord Jesus is our master, to treat the Bible as he treated it and to be humble before it. And the fact of the matter is that God's judgment is alien to his nature. That is, it's not inglorious, uh, he is glorified in his justice. But Isaiah chapter 28 says it's an alien task for him to exercise judgment. Just as it's an alien task, although a responsible task for a parent to exercise discipline with children. And Ezekiel chapter 18 says, the Lord says that he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. Lamentations 3 says he brings, he unwilling, he's unwilling to bring uh, hardship on anybody. And before we criticize him, and I'm being as careful as I can and perhaps as defensive as I can, we need to remember that in order to save people from judgment, he gave his own son to judgment. Now, I wonder whether this war idea could encourage you. I wonder if you could stand back from this and say, the God of the Bible, who is so remarkable in love and patience and kindness, is also a God who fights against evil. I've told you before that uh, some years ago I interviewed Clifford Warren, who was a great servant of the Lord, uh, brought the gospel to television and radio, and he was a member of our congregation for many years. And when he turned 70, about 12 years ago, I interviewed him in my office with a little tape recorder, and I remember saying to him toward the end of the interview, what are you looking forward to now? And his answer, you may have heard me say this before, I'm looking forward to not having a sinful nature. I thought, what a funny thing to say. But the longer you go on in the Christian life, the more you realise that your sinful nature dogs you and bugs you. And there's some great reality and wisdom in what he said, that he longs for the end of a sinful nature. And the reason I say this to you this morning is because evil in our hearts depresses us. We, we really do wonder, don't we, how God can go on being as patient as he is and forgiving as he is and as merciful as he is. The evil inside us bugs us. It depresses us. And the evil around us, which is escalating and becoming more aggressive, it also depresses us. And the two are linked because the evil that is in the world is the product of a heart like mine. Somebody has said the heart of every problem is the problem of every heart. But God is at work for the eradication of evil. Education is not going to do it. The police and the army for all the will in the world are not going to eradicate evil. 
God is going to do it. And just as we put soap into machines in order to start a cleansing process, God has started a cleansing process. He's made promises that the future will be righteous without evil. You can read about this in Isaiah 25 or 35. Just have a look at the window that he gives us in Isaiah 25 and 35 of what the future will look like. And he sent his son, and we see in Jesus' life dealing with evil. And then we see in his death the disarming of evil. And then we see in his resurrection the overcoming. And he will finish the process of eradicating evil. This Deuteronomy should affect our sensitivities, but it should also remind us that there is one who is at war with evil for righteousness. And one day we will thank him and we will share in all the joy and all the hallelujahs of Revelation 19, 20, 21 and 22. Now I want to finish by just taking 60 seconds on the last two verses, God's farsightedness, where suddenly we get to the end of the chapter and there is some instruction on trees. And what a strange end to the chapter, as if the trees were suddenly the climax of the chapter. But how often a chapter in the Bible, and especially in Deuteronomy I've noticed, finishes with a verse or an idea which is the key to the whole chapter. And these two unusual verses on trees are the key to the whole chapter because God is not elevating trees to greatness as a greenie. He says in verse 20, you can cut them down for siege works if you need to. But he says, don't destroy the fruit trees. Now, why does he say this on a chapter on war? And the reason is because he's farsighted. He is asking the question of his people, why would you destroy what will take years to grow? Why would you destroy what will feed you? This land, God is saying to his people, is for your blessing. War is a necessity for entry, but my plans for you are that there would be plenty, quality and quantity, And I wonder as you listen to this little verse or two about trees, whether you can stand back and see the whole Bible. And I wonder whether you can hear an echo of the beginning of the Bible, where God said, there are trees for you to enjoy. And the man and the woman, as we know, turned their back on God and lost all the blessing. And now God in his great patience and kindness is working again to bring people in for a land with trees. And I wonder whether you can see a preview of the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, 22, where we're told that in the new creation, which is going to be like this world, but all evil, sadness and sickness taken away, there will be the plenty of the trees, the fruit, the food, the quality, the quantity, the abundance, all that God, a good God, would plan. And so these unusual verses on trees have an echo of the beginning, which is lost, and they have a preview to the end, which has been found. 
And it's been found, if you can believe it, through the tree that Christ died on. It's his tree, crucified on the tree, which enables God's people to move from what has been lost to what will be found. And God, you see, is interested in the blessing and the plenty, the far-sighted good of his people. And that's what these verses are teaching. He fights, confronting, but we should be thankful. He's fair, even in justice. And he's far-sighted, interested beyond belief in the welfare of his people. So let's thank him. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we bow before you this morning. We bow before this word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to be a God who's not only for peace, but also for war, that you know what to pursue and you know what to remove. We thank you that you are a God of great fairness, that you are merciful and just. And we thank you that you are a God of far-sighted love and power, that you have planned for your people through your Son something which is greater than we could ask or imagine. We pray, our gracious God, that you would help us to walk with you in humble, faithful, joyful fellowship. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.